Computer, initialize Holosuite. Greetings and felicitations. Yep, yep, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, baby doll. Hey, Pin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. Contributors to this episode include NASA contractor Lauren White. She will discuss the life and legacy of Dr. Werner von Braun. Also, members of the Werner von Braun chapter of Starfleet International, Richard Trollson and Laura Peterson, discuss how much fun it is to be part of the club. Chris Krasinski from Potemkin Pictures, an incredible Star Trek fan production, will tell us the differences between special effects that were used in the 70s versus the special effects that are used today. And also, Gal Troll will tell us about Isaac Asimov's faster than light travel theories and whether they hold up to the Star Trek universe and the science that we know of now. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. The Huntsville Comic and Pop Expo, April 9th to 11th. On Sunday, we will be presenting two panels, Star Trek 101 and Starlog, the world's greatest science fiction magazine. This will be in Huntsville, Alabama. The ICCC convention, that is the Imperial Commissary Collectors Convention, in Nashville, Tennessee, on April 16th through 18th. MathrothamCon, April 30th to May 2nd. We will be presenting a panel on Saturday entitled Star Trek on Paramount Plus. That is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We hope to see you there. So Star Log Magazine, issue number 9, cover date October 1977. And it does have William Shatner on the cover. A little picture of him, but it's Shat back in the 70s. He's got that cool necklace on, big collars. The great 70s look, and he still looks great. <laughs> he always did, sure. I love the opening blog, what we would consider now a blog, on page four. Carrie O'Quinn, the editor-in-chief from The Bridge. One of the strongest, most enduring themes in science fiction concerns human reactions to alien beings. Initially, aliens may appear fearsome and threatening, but also often their knowledge and experience proves to be of great benefit to the human race. Provided we see their differences not as strange and undesirable, but as unique and fascinating. And he talks about episodes like Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, the Vulcan creed of infinite diversity in infinite combinations. I mean, what do you think about this theme that permeates Star Trek, not only in the original series, but throughout all series. 
Well, first of all, I just have to say this was great about Kiryo Quinn, the publisher of, of Starlog. He was a Star Trek fan, and he understood these principles. Um, so, yeah, the the great idea of diversity and how we should we should embrace our differences, like Itik says, and and not be scared of people who are different, because we're, like on Star Trek, we're going to explore outer space and find all kinds of intelligent life that's different from us and hopefully they they're friendly we find out that some are and some aren't but we give them all a chance we want to try to communicate and to try to learn from each other and it's a great concept even now even in today's world we're we're so interconnected now and you can meet people from all over the world just online and you can learn so much from them just having conversations, little chats, and reading reading their blogs, uh, seeing their their YouTube videos, everything. It, it's great to see all this diversity of races and all these different cultures. Mm-hmm. I love how it brings out on the Columbia Records album, Inside Star Trek. Now, we have a link to it on our YouTube channel. It's definitely worth listening to because it has actual interviews with Gene Roddenberry. And Gene is quoted by saying, The whole show was an attempt to say that humanity will reach maturity and wisdom on the day that it begins not just to tolerate, but to take a special delight in differences in ideas and differences in life forms. We tried to say that the worst possible thing that could happen to all of us is for the future to somehow press us all into a common mold where we begin to act and talk and look and think alike. If we cannot learn to actually enjoy those small differences, take a positive delight in those small differences between our own kind here on this planet, then we do not deserve to go out into space and meet the diversity that is almost certainly out there. Those were great words from Gene. And and he really believed that and and that's one of the things that made Star Trek so wonderful. Yes. And this article closes by saying, In simple terms, the science fiction theme of appreciating individual uniqueness is live and let live. Perhaps Anita Bryant, and she was one who was very anti-homosexual back in the 70s, the frightened bigots who follow her, and all other moral and political dictators of the world would be less fearful of people who are not carbon copies of their values and would relent in their efforts to force the rest of the world into their personal mold if they had more literary interests in science fiction. So yes, we know that Star Trek is known for this theme, but... Movies like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, the David Bowie movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth. These are themes of, hey, we we have to appreciate differences in others. Yes, it's a, it's a premise that's used in a lot of sci-fi. I, I mean, it's, you know, you also see the opposite. You do see the people that come to Earth to, to kill us and nothing else. But, but the great thing about it is that you can still see, like, all, all the great Star Trek and all these other movies you mentioned where, where people are just learning about each other. And, and it's also how Gene said about the future, because right now there's still people among us, there's countries fighting. But on, on Star Trek, you know, all of Earth is united. And working together to explore space, which is a great thing about Gene Roddenberry's idea about the future. 
Yes, and that's why mostly all our fans are sci-fi fans, because for the most part, sci-fi fans are pretty cool people. They are. They understand the these differences in people and how they make us stronger. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. NASA's study on space settlements. In an effort to publicize their grandest scheme, NASA has published Space Settlements, a design study. This 185-page beautifully illustrated book printed on glossy, heavy stock paper is available from the Superintendent of Documents, U.S. Government Printing Office, for $5. I don't think they do things like that anymore. Like NASA producing books that help everyone understand what they're looking forward to doing in the future. Yeah, this was another, you know, great thing to read in, in an old magazine about um, NASA made a book about settlements in space. And it was actually pretty cool. That So what this article says is that, that they're saying that, they're, that the technology that was available back then could, could be used to uh, to create settlements on the moon or on Mars or something. So that was really very interesting. It made it sound like a, a really good book. <laughs> Requiem for a planet. Explorers have landed on a distant planet. They have found the remains of civilizations that once thrived and reached a high level of technological achievement. This is the premise and format of a new half-hour science fiction series, Requiem for a Planet, which producer William Braden calls a sort of cross between 60 Minutes and Star Trek. Now, I've never seen this show before, but it does sound kind of fascinating. No, I didn't see it either. I don't even remember it. It must have been, you must know. must have been a flop. <laughs> <laughs> but I like 60 Minutes, and I like Star Trek. So, I mean, the Star Trek phenomena was truly at its height in 1977, we could say in many ways, because it was being repeated in syndication on so many stations. So you could see that there were people trying to tap into copycatting it to a certain degree. Use found for shuttle fuel tank. The only element of the space shuttle designed to be expandable is now envisioned as possibly becoming an important part of a permanent space platform. One of several options being studied at the Marshall Space Flight Center is the possibility that the external fuel tank might go into orbit with Enterprise, then become a separate orbiting vehicle. So we know that the space shuttle Enterprise was a test for space shuttles, and they were looking at expanding uses. And another great thing about Star Trek, since the, the name Enterprise was inspired by Star Trek, one of the chapters in Starfleet International out of Mississippi is named the USS Hayes after the commander of the shuttle. That's right. Yeah, Fred Hayes. He did pilot the space shuttle Enterprise in free flight to three successful landings after being released from the shuttle carrier aircraft. So these test flights that he commanded successfully verified the shuttle's flight characteristics, which was an important step towards the overall success of the program. So, I mean, we're talking a lot about Starfleet International and in, in this episode especially, and I think it's cool that we have some friends that are part of a chapter that are named after him. Another Star Trek connection that ties in with real-world NASA science. Shatner makes his first L.A. con appearance. 
They really don't need all the rest of this, said an experienced conventioner. Shatner would have been enough. Indeed, the vast hall at the Los Angeles Convention Center was overflowing with more than 15,000 who attended SpaceCon 4 on each of the several occasions when the Star Trek favorite spoke. Man, that must have been awesome going to that convention. Yeah, and, and it seems like the a lot of the conventions back, the Star Trek conventions back then were bigger than the ones now because because there was nothing else the fans had besides going to the cons. you got to figure the one now, the official one in Las Vegas, doesn't even sell out, and their max is 6,000. I mean, so this is more than double that. I mean, look at some of these others that were there. Gary Kurtz, Alan Dean Foster. Oh, man, huge Alan Dean Foster fan. I would love to see him at a convention. Back he at that time? Dragon Con, yeah. yeah, that would have Have been you neat. met him at Dragon Con? Yeah, I mean, I've seen him on panels. That's cool. That's cool. I, I never have. Uh, other speakers include Harlan Ellison, Theodore Sturgeon, DeForest Kelly, Grace Lee Whitley, Dorothy Fontana, Malcolm Klein, B. Joe Trimble, and also a variety of scientists as well. I, I think we're getting away somewhat of having scientists involved in Star Trek conventions. We've seen some, though. Uh, there's a bit of a resurgence from it, like Dr. Noor, Dr. McDonald, to name a few, which, which I'm glad when they do make their way into Star Trek and sci-fi conventions. But it seemed to be more heavily involved back at that time. I mean, do you think we're seeing a resurgence, a, a renaissance of sort, of bringing space and science back into to Star Trek conventions? I do. I think we are seeing more scientists. And they're, yeah, they, they had kind of cut down on that before because, I, I mean, the scientists are not as popular as the actors. But I think there there is a resurging interest in it now with with Elon Musk, with more space exploration now. Because the space program had been kind of cut back, but there's 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 a resurgence of interest in space and science now. That's a good point. That's a good point. And and there's more of an awareness of the need of STEM education with young people. So I think previously the focus was so much obsessed about celebrity photographs and autographs, and I think we're getting to the point a little bit more so of going back to the roots of what makes Star Trek so awesome: are the themes and the science and the hope for the future. Even though the celebrities are still very popular, and I mean, and like they're fun to fo- go to. Sure, photo ops you couldn't do back then. Not the not the way they do them now, where where you can just get your picture the same day. But but now they have the photo ops with the scientists, and that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that too. is neat. Yeah, I like this uh, selling the cells on page nine. Star Trek original hand painted cells from the animated series are for sale. And they were $20 each back then, plus $1.50 postage. Greetings, everyone. This is Lauren White. I ask you all to forgive me. I am suffering with a bit of allergies and congestion right now, so I might not sound like myself, but I am excited to be here and talk to you all about this article on Warner Von Braun. Now, I will admit to you and to everyone, I am not a history buff. And so there are a lot of things about history that I should probably know that I don't know. And a lot of this information about Warner Von Braun was actually very new to me. 
and very exciting to read, given the fact that I am an avid Trekkie, a super nerd, and now working as a contractor at NASA. It's it's a little disappointing in myself <laughs> that I did not know some of this information. So to learn about Warner Von Braun's history uh, was actually really amazing to me, and it's always super cool to me to learn about people that have that knack. You may have seen a uh, a satirical video about Dilbert and his mother. She took him to the doctor, and the doctor says, "Oh goodness, you know he's he's got the knack." He's been taking apart microwaves and, and various other things. He's going to be an engineer, and she just cries to herself, oh, my God, my child. You know, that's kind of the, the nature of that video, and I encourage you to look it up if you haven't seen it. Uh, for those of us that have actually become engineers and are very uh, involved in that field or around those in that field, it's kind of hilarious. And as I read this article about Werner von Braun, this memorial about him, about what he did at a young age, you know, taking apart fuel pumps and whatnot, and how that eventually led to his work in the space field. That's exactly what I thought of. He had the knack at a young age. He had that knack that some of us so long for. And he created the world that some of us now work in. One of our Starfleet ships in the Starfleet International Association, is named after him. And to be honest, I, I never bothered to wonder why. I never bothered to look into him. I just know that the people on that ship are kind of cool. I myself have been part of the USS Haven, also in the same region of Starfleet International Region 2. The Haven is named after a medical Navy ship, which is more personal to me, having been a civilian in the Navy for the first almost 11 plus years of my career. Well, now I am, after uh, several job changes, a contractor with NASA. It's the first time I've worked in anything but defense, and I'm learning about space flight at Kennedy Space Center, where I live. And it's so exciting. It's exciting to be a part of the Artemis launches. It's exciting as a black woman, as a millennial, as all the things that are unexpected of me to be, to be a part of this future. And to look at how Dr. Von Braun made that possible. It was very, very interesting to me to read about, having not known that previously, uh, to see that he even took photos of Walt Disney, which is another creation that I live so nearby here in Orlando, and that they, you know, they bonded with each other. He was so instrumental in spaceflight and the first flight on the moon. You know, people have been asking me what it is like uh, to work at NASA. Well, first of all, it was a very unexpected job opportunity. I had no intention of looking for a new job. I had left the government after just 11 plus years. I had gone to industry and worked with a couple uh, 
major defense contractors and I got a phone call one day that said, hey, do you want to be a contractor working at Kennedy Space Center? And I was like, well, hey, I'm not looking for a new job, but why not? You know, let's let's just let's talk about it. Things went quickly than I could have ever imagined. And now I am living the dream of so many of my friends that are engineers that have wanted to be astronauts and a dream that for the United Federation of Planets and that might make me a nerdy psychopath but you know what that is what a lot of us want to do that's what a lot of us in Starfleet International are here for we are working toward that Gene Roddenberry future of a life in space of a mission in space of a career in space and of exploration of everything, not just space, but, but people, humanity, aliens, everything else. And this is the first step that I could possibly take towards that. And so when I drive into work and I get to see the vehicle assembly building coming closer to me in the distance, when I get to the building where I sit that is directly across from that, to think that I have such easy access to where we are building the Artemis rocket in conjunction with the Orion that is going to take people to space, that I can drive to the launch pad where we send people into space, that I have a direct impact on this future work, on sending people back to the moon, on getting us closer to that vision. I wonder if people like Dr. Von Braun even thought about that when they were experimenting at 12 years old with bicycle pumps. Did we ever really think that that would be more than a fantasy? Did we ever really think that we would get there? I totally believe that we can. And working in this industry in a place that I had never imagined being so close to something that's close to my heart and to what has seemed like a fantasy to most of us back in the day. But now in this time, it's, it's almost real. It's almost tangible. We could almost reach out and, and touch it. We're going to the moon. We're going to the Mars. We're going to Mars, not the Mars. Pardon me. How much more can we do? And so to read about this history, to learn about how we got here, to learn about his struggles even in the process, because it wasn't his intent to be a Nazi supporter. You know, technology is often taken and used for purposes that we don't intend. That is actually one of the, the things that I really enjoy about the show Black Mirror. It's about science, technology, and society, which is something that I focus on an undergraduate mechanical engineering degree at the University of Maryland in our scholars program. My focus was science, technology, and society. And that is a show that just takes that and brings it to life in ways that are all too real for us. We could take all this technology that could be so good for us, that could be so beneficial, and we could turn it into something awful. We could weaponize it. We could use it to destroy ourselves. And fortunately, Dr. Von Braun was against that. 
and his technology was used for where we are now, for spaceflight. That's what he wanted. And fortunately, those like myself are able to take that legacy and continue it into where we are now, into future space flights, future missions, and maybe one day starting the United Federation of Planets. Who knows? <laughs> you know, maybe Star Trek will become really real for us. I certainly hope so. And you know, I hope that legacy that was begun that we have taken on as a mantle uh, for one of our ships in Starfleet is something that we are eventually able to realize. And I'm here for it. I'm here for all of it. And so NASA is a dream that I never envisioned. But I have loved every moment of it just in these last few weeks. I love the people that I'm meeting. I'm loving the history that I'm learning from them, even the bad moments where we have failed in engineering, where we have lost life. Nothing is ever without that. Well, we are very excited to talk about a Star Trek fan club that is near and dear to us. That is... Starfleet International, the USS Warner Von Braun. And that's the ship that we are part of. So let's talk about the history of the the whole group of Starfleet International and then talk about our ship that we're involved with in Huntsville, Alabama. And as our special guests, we have with us... Laura Peterson. And... Richard Trollson. So, Laura, give us some background. Where did you grow up, and how did you get into Trek? Dad was in the Air Force, so we lived all over the country. Um, Mom decided that I was going to watch Star Trek, and that was the original series when it was first being aired, and I didn't have any choice about it. I was going to watch Star Trek, and I loved it from the first episode. Awesome. You're talking original series, then. Original series. How about you, Richard? Well, uh, I remember as a kid when my best friend, uh, we used to play around and everything like that. And one of the things we did, I remember getting the styrofoam packages off of, like, say, meat and stuff like that, washing them up and everything like that thoroughly. You know, this is back before, you know, germs and everything like that. <laughs> and we would make little styrofoam enterprises everything like that so okay that's really cool i like that a lot that's fun being creative so let's talk about the club because that's how we became friends mm -hmm. is through starfleet international so apparently it started out in 1973 in texas a group was called the uss enterprise yes as far as i know it started just like say, a group of star trek fans getting together having fun and obviously started, you know, people hearing about it, and they started promoting themselves. And eventually uh, they decided to get another chapter forming. And once they got that other chapter forming, that's when they decided to call, rename themselves from the USS Enterprise to Starfleet. Of course, then it was, I think it was called Starfleet Command or something like that. And we, we know that on May 23rd, 1974, the first issue of the organization's newsletter, which was called Starfleet communications uh, made the announcement the USS Enterprise has been reorganized effective star date 2538.0 it will henceforth be known as Starfleet due to directives determined during reorganization 
So this was – you're talking about the early 70s. Obviously, there was no internet. I mean we know that. But also, um, fandom, as far as conventions, were at the earliest phases as well. So this was the best way for fans to communicate with each other. Now, Kavora and I, we go back with conventions where we remember seeing the Starfleet table set up. And different clubs, they would even give mailing lists so you could have pen pals and things like that. So this was so unique that Star Trek fans really had this grassroots network what maybe five years after the cancellation of the show there was still some fervor for star trek fandom yes um i didn't get into star trek fandom until one of my friends um talked me into going to a convention with her it was a vulcan in atlanta and the guest was uh denise crosby and that was my first Star Trek convention experience, and it was incredible, and I haven't turned around since. Yeah, I was probably there. That was the 1990, I think, in that year. Yeah, and uh, it was great fun. So, I mean, yeah, so we go back a long way with the cons and everything and with the fandom. That's cool. Actually, my connection with fandom like that didn't uh start out there early. I didn't really get involved with the fandom itself. Yeah, I was fans of the movies and everything like that, watched the movies and everything like that. But it wasn't until I was at college in the early nineties that, you know, I saw a guy running around with a com badge on his shirt, you know, no uniform, but just a com badge. And it's like, I want to know that guy. And we got to talking and ended up we ended up being roommates together for the last four years of our college career. And uh, he was really big into it and other friends and everything like that. So that's how I got into it. So now, Richard, tell us about what you do for Starfleet International with regard to the club that's based here in Huntsville, Alabama. Tell us about the Werner Von Braun. Well, Werner Von Braun is the Huntsville, Alabama chapter of Starfleet. I didn't start it. Uh, I just sort of inherited the group when I graduated from college, came down here, uh, I am now the commanding officer, the CEO. Uh, everyone calls me captain, although I have a slightly different rank now. So I do the command, I'm the commanding officer, just basically plan out things. And there are d- different styles of commanding officers. You know, some are like you know, by the book. I'm more of a laid back uh, type of style, and so just plan out activities for the club and everything. Like that. And sometimes it takes. Someone just to say, hey, I want to do this. What do you guys think about doing that? Do you want to join me in doing this? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't like to speak up and say, hey, I want to do this, whatever. They'll just go, sort of go along with the crowd sometimes. So mm-hmm. I think that takes one of the key characteristics of a commanding officer is being willing to say, hey, well, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that or whatever? How had the club start here? What are the origins within Starfleet International? Okay, well, know a little bit about our origins. You have to know about Huntsville is known as the Rocket City because, obviously, back after the war, the German rocket scientists were trying to develop a rocket. Not a very good period of history, but they eventually uh, came to the U.S., uh, and Dr. Werner von Braun, who helped develop the mighty Saturn V rocket to man to the moon, uh, developed the rockets here in Huntsville. So with that thought in mind, it was when we came, they chose, had to choose a name for a club, obviously, Dr. Werner von Braun was the obvious choice. And just about, there's tons of stuff named after Dr. von Braun. So give us an idea of why Starfleet International 
is a worthy club for Star Trek fans to join? Well, we have in the past done charities. We have uh, organized events and conventions. We do uh, promotional activities. We go out in uniform and um, hang out and talk to kids. The kids love us. The kids want to be around people in costume. It's just a lot of fun besides, besides being an opportunity to maybe do some social work as well. We love being part of the Werner von Braun. I mean, it's it's a group of camaraderie for us because we love hanging out with our friends and doing Trek-related stuff, even if it's picnics. We still talk about Trek. The club has been a lot of fun for us since we joined. Yeah, we so we've had um, our viewings of Star Trek and Quantum Leap Day and mm-hmm. and doing the the picnic. So I mean, yeah. So the club is very active, and we like that. And it's a very friendly group of people. Now, Starfleet International is just that, an international club. Tell us a little bit about that, how it affects fans worldwide. Well, surprisingly, I think one of the largest – Starfleet used to call itself – was recognized actually by the Guinness World Record as being the largest Star Trek fan club in existence. I think that's since been supplanted by a club in – I want to say – Dublin, but I'm not sure about that. But anyway, there is a, another organization out there that is larger, and obviously because the Starfleet started in the U.S., it's where it's mostly common at. But like I said, there are chapters all over the world, uh, Europe, Australia, you, n- you name it. And so, and I think, obviously, they get probably Star Trek quite a long time after we do. So I, I think they have a slightly different a view coming into Starfleet and everything like that and having to wait for things to get ported over to them. That might be changing now with streaming and stuff like that, but I still think it's still a, sort of a delayed reaction spreading out. Give us an idea of the structure of Starfleet International and how all these ships, that's what we call the, the local clubs, how are these ships organized? Starfleet actually, like I said, started out as a single group, which got a couple more chapters coming in, and that's the basic structure of Starfleet, a bunch of groups all around the world. Each chapter has to have a CEO and an XO, a commanding officer and an executive officer. How those chapters are organized is up to those chapters, so each chapter can be focused on a different thing. Uh, some people like role-playing, some people like gaming, some people just like watching Star Trek, some like doing community service. You know, each chapter has a different focus on different things. Some just do everything, and some do nothing at all. So it's just really up to them. As far as the international organization, it's sort of organized like the Starfleet you see on TV, which our, our big head honcho is called the Fleet Admiral, and our Commander Starfleet. Fleet Admirals use rank, obviously. And the Commander Starfleet, of course, has our executive committee that has various uh, people that do various things, like handle the production of our newsletter, uh, a Vice Commander Starfleet, just like, you know, most clubs have a president and vice president. you got, you know, a Chief of Financial Officer as well, you know. Uh, we've got Chief of Communications and stuff like that. So they got various departments to handle everything. And we found out that membership has its privileges. We even get discounts on car rentals, on hotels. I mean, it's a nonprofit organization that's recognized worldwide as for doing charitable work, and its members are oftentimes rewarded. 
Correct. I mean, while no one has ultimate authority over anyone because it's an all-volunteer organization, you can't order someone to do something because we're not the military, even though we are based upon the Starfleet that you see in Star Trek. However, like I said, membership, you do, some people, they'll join, they'll take a fictional Starfleet Academy classes, and they'll get assigned a rank, and they can get promoted up in rank and everything like that. So I'm currently a vice admiral. Uh, you know, chapters can promote up to up to a commander within themselves. And, of course, in order to get higher rank uh, within the organization, you've got to get involved with the regional structures or the international structure and everything like that. Yeah, and I just want to say about because it is an international club, another thing that uh, Nayar and I do is the um – the Starfleet po- postcard exchange is, is just a lot of fun. You just you mm-hmm. send and receive postcards to people like all over the country and all over the world, and it's just it's just fun to receive the postcards from, you know, Ireland, England, Australia. So, like you said, it's th- there's different things for different people. If you're into gaming, if you're into costuming, there's something for everyone. And what what about give us some some ideas about. You mentioned how you can take tests or you can find out more information about a particular science or engineering platform. What does that involve? Okay, Starfleet Academy is obviously based upon the Starfleet Academy you see in the TV series or in the movies or anything like that. They have uh, a dean who's in charge of everything. They have uh, deans over various schools like School of Technology, School of the Arts, whatever the case may be. They also have the the teachers, um, the course directors and everything like that. They administer the exams and everything like that. And a lot of it's just based on trivia. That's the core thing. But the thing is, some of those things, like say the College of Communications, you learn how to make a newsletter. So you actually do have some real world beneficial things you can learn about that. And to become an officer in the organization, a CEO or XO in charge of your own chapter, you need to take OTS, which is Officer Training School. Then you take Officer's Command College, and they teach you how to uh, how the organization is structured and everything like that, but they also present some real-world questions uh, about how things can come up, how to deal with people and everything like that. So it's not just trivia, but it's so much more. And from what I understand, Starfleet even offers scholarships to colleges and universities. Exactly. Uh, it's entirely member-funded. If you want to donate to the scholarship when you renew, you can. And so if members come in and they've got some kids that are graduating high school and they want to go to college and need a little bit of money, well, it's not a lot, but every little bit helps. Awesome. What does Starfleet mean to you? Starfleet has been a place where my friends and I have found an accepting, loving group of people. They're looking for a better world, and they're willing to accept people as they are. I've seen people who, quite frankly, have few social skills, and we accept them and and love them. And then lots of my other friends have plenty of social skills, and that's fine. We, we love them all. For me... As a CEO, I do have to deal sometimes with more difficult subjects, you know, problem members, you know, 
mentioned uh, someone with poor social skills, whatever the case may be. And you also get, you know, sometimes, anytime you put more than a couple of people together, there's always going to be, you know, some conflicts when you get different ideas together. But that's the whole philosophy of Short Trek, infinite diversity, infinite combinations. Mm -hmm. And that brings people together. So I try to ensure that the people I'm with are having a good time and everything like that. And that's what Starfleet allows me to do is to get together with like-minded people. And when Starfleet first started, yeah, we didn't have the Internet and everything like that then. So it's a little bit easier now, I think, to get those with those together. But that will never replace being able to get together with people face-to-face, having a good time with good friends. Yes, it's a lot of fun. And, and like you said, it is very accepting I mean, we, you know, anybody can join, and and you make you make a lot of friends. You meet all kinds of people, and and it's just wonderful. It's the uh, expression of ITIC, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Starfleet International, SFI dot org. We're glad that we joined, and we're glad that we have friends in this international club. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you, and hopefully we can boldly go where few of us go. We have an advertisement here for William Shatner Live, limited collector's edition, first time offered, thrilling two-record album. Now, we have that in our collection, and we'll put a link to it in our YouTube page. Definitely check out our YouTube page where we we have the recording. Uh, Shatner during this time was so fascinating because he was kind of reinventing his career, realizing that he could go on tours at colleges, but also make a series of recordings, not just him singing, but him doing speeches and reciting poetry. That was a fascinating idea. And, of course, doing colleges is something Gene Roddenberry was also doing at that time. So, I mean, probably Bill got the idea from Gene. Yeah, great record album. Starlog interview. William Shatner, moving right along. With the Star Trek role of Captain James T. Kirk behind him perhaps forever, with a new science fiction movie and a highly successful college tour just completed, William Shatner takes time to talk about future opportunities for himself and the world around him. I thought that was so funny when it said the role of Captain Kirk is probably behind him, like like he'll never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, this time it was... It went back and forth, back and forth, whether this TV movie was going to be produced, whether Star Trek II would be a series with or without him. They couldn't straighten out anything, and yeah, it and was, he discusses it's, that. Yeah, it was still up in the air at this time. So, I mean, so yeah, the, what they wrote made sense back then. It's just funny to go back and read it now. Um, but he, he does say in this interview, though, that um, he signed a contract a year ago, and they paid him. I mean, they must have paid him some kind of a, a small fee, like not really as much as he would get for for making the movie. Yes. But they paid him Like something. a signing fee, yes. Right, a year ago, and now it's a year later and the contract has run out. So so now, and he's saying he, he doesn't know if he's going to do it. And the guy's life is on hold. It's got to be frustrating for him. It, yeah, it must have been. So he's still finding other things to do. And I mean, but so he's still staying busy, though. I mean, he, you know, he's finding other ways to to make money, to use his craft, to use his talent and his personality. Yes, because uh, we like know we he was doing a lot of commercials too yes, in the seventies yeah. for for margarine, for for grocery stores. I mean, he was kind of getting whatever he could do. He wanted to be an actor. 
whatever. Yeah, he could find to do, and and of course, and it was cashing in on the Captain Kirk popularity because when he made commercials, that's what people people knew him as Captain Kirk. And within the future, they would really know him as T.J. <laughs> Hooker. Right, that too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which wasn't too far um, after this interview, a few years later. But uh, and he, he was so philosophical in this interview, wasn't he? He was. You're not kidding. Like he's really a thinker. He was very, very intuitive. He talks about he just made the movie Kingdom of Spiders, so he was being active in more the horror genre at that time. Yes, again, I think it's just whatever he could find. But that, but that was something that a movie that people went to see back then. Sure. And he said he was experimental. He was just experimenting with everything, experimenting theatrically. He even mentioned the whales in here, which was funny, too. Something about saving the whales. And that was a personal passion of his. And it makes you wonder. So where did, you know, maybe he's the one who presented the idea for Star Trek Four. And he said that he wanted to stay within television. He felt that that was the format that was going to be the mainstay of entertainment. But he didn't want to do something weekly. And I think that was the idea with... Remember, I was being tossed around with Star Trek Phase 2, what the format would be. Would it be a series of special engagements on television? You just wonder, because they couldn't figure out what they wanted to do at this point. you got to figure, Star Wars had just broken out as a blockbuster at this time. And so we're going to see within the next couple issues of Starlog Magazine that that is going to affect decision-making on Paramount immensely. But at this time, they were still struggling to figure out what they were going to do with Star Trek on television. But Bill makes it clear in this article. He doesn't want to do it weekly like he did back in the 60s. He, he just didn't want to be tied down because it was such grueling work playing Captain Kirk in the 60s. It was so physical and, and he was spending long hours on the set. And, and also he, the, the studio must have been thinking, Science fiction is so expensive to make, so they would have been happier if it wasn't a weekly series, if it was just something like a mini-series. Mm-hmm. He said he's doing well on the college tour. And I've never met anybody in real life that went to see him during this college tour era, which I think would be really fascinating. It would have. Yeah, and, and, if, and if more people had been able to record videos back then so mm-hmm. we could you know, see something of that. And he talks about the album that, that we discussed that was advertised in here, how he reads experts of Cyrano de Bergerac, Will, uh, William, Shakespeare. He's asked, William Shakespeare. Yeah, it's, it's so strange when you listen to it because it's not, it doesn't have much to do with Star Trek. Some of the things he talks about are, are space exploration and astronomy. But overall, Bill at this time really wants to break away from being typecast. And that's the fear of all actors. They don't want to be locked into one position to the point where they can't get work anywhere else. I mean, especially someone like Leonard Nimoy, who was really trying to get away from Star Trek and wasn't even sure if he was going to come back for for Star Trek Phase 2. He did a fantastic job on Mission Impossible. So he was proving that he could do it. So imagine Bill's frustration when he sees Leonard break away who often feel he is the face of Star Trek, much to Bill's chagrin. And and Bill is doing com- television commercials, so he's still trying to find his footing. 
talks about he likes spending time bow hunting for deer. He he has a lot of interests, and that that's cool too. He he likes staying busy, which he says in here he likes some. So, but so there's his work, but then there's also his other passions, the things that he does in his spare time. Doesn't mention anything about horses in this article, so I don't think he really got into horses till later on. Hmm, maybe not. You know, I mean, the whole thing talks about him being tied into the earth. He's very interested in the species of the earth, whether it be a mosquito all the way up to larger items. So he expresses being a nature person, but specifically horses, which we know that he has an extreme passion for, has been for decades. He hasn't really mentioned it here, so I thought that that was curious. And also he says he thinks a great deal about the philosophies of life after death. That's why I was saying he's he's so much more philosophical in this interview. He he mentions the these esoteric things and it's and it's really fascinating because you, we never really thought of of Bill as being that way. Even though he you know you see him live, he is a great storyteller and he incredible does, storyteller. He's never boring. Exactly. Many would say that his creation of the personality of Captain Kirk is a more meaningful accomplishment than most men ever approach. Many, too, would point out that even philosophically, Kirk and Shatner have much in common. And he admitted that, yes, he is part of Captain Kirk. And But, yeah, the way, the way Kirk was such a, a physical person, the way he was, well, a fighter and a lover, and that's... And I think Bill put a lot of himself in that. I mean, he's a great actor, but also some some of it is his own personality shining through. He closes by saying, I played Kirk the way I would like to be. Given his battles with a monster or his decisions to go into war or whatever, I played him as I'd like to have behaved in that situation. So he he's saying he does believe in a lot of those ideals of Star Trek, the idea of diplomacy and making peace and getting along with people, as we've said before. Star Trek Report, a fan news column by Susan Sackett. All right, Susan Sackett's giving us some updates on the new Star Trek production that has been in the works for some time. The original cast... Paramount has said nothing about recasting Star Trek, and we are going to try to get all of the original regulars back. Press releases were hand-delivered to each member of the original cast by a messenger from Gene Roddenberry, an indication that he would like them all back. So it was always good reading Susan Sackett's articles. because She, she gives the, well, what, what news is the most up-to-date at the time. So she was saying that Star Trek will be back as a TV show. So now they've gone back to saying, okay, it'll be it'll be on TV instead of a movie. And the question that was looming over people's brains during this time were were William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy going to be back? Yeah, and she the, said they they're going to be invited back. Of course, that's what they wa- ideally they wanted that back, but they had a backup plan. We know that they had a backup plan if they wouldn't agree to it. And she also says that even at this time there was talking about forming a fourth network. For TV, yes, and that long and that before they, UPN, this right. was the idea. And there would be for uh, for Star Trek, thirteen to twenty-two episodes for a season. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much a full season, but it could have been a short. You know, like thirteen, if they wanted to do thirteen, have a shorter season. Which yes, back then it would have been like 
twenty something episodes would have been a season. So this would have been yeah, kind so of like an been, every yeah. other week type thing. Which is, I mean, it's more common now to have the shorter seasons. Yes. Back then, you you really didn't see that on TV. No. Except, I mean, you know, just Except the British shows that got canceled yes. early. Yes. Mm-hmm. The production staff, Gene Roddenberry will be the executive producer, and to date, no one else has been set. Gene has expressed interest in re- reassembling some of the talent people who worked on the original series. Now, he couldn't get back Matt Jeffries because Matt was working on Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, they couldn't get back every person. But, but you know, we, we've, so in our previous Starlog issues where they talked about hiring two writers to write for the motion picture and it was these two guys who had never done sci-fi before. It's crazy to think about that. And now it sounds like that idea's been dropped. Like they're, mm-hmm. like, I, it'll probably be mostly Gene and he'll hire his writing staff to do this TV series, which we know they didn't do now, but, but back then that's probably what they would have done. And he mentions that they can't get back D.C. Fontana or David Gerald because they were both involved in Logan's run. Well, yeah, but that didn't last but one <laughs> season. <laughs> Production and air dates. Production is scheduled to begin sometime late this fall. And Paramount would like to see Star Trek on the air by the spring of 1978. Wow. And, and we know that that didn't happen. Network and television stations. Paramount Pictures recently acquired a string of television stations which would have been part of the old Hughes network. Next year, Paramount Television Service, by utilizing these stations and enlisting additional affiliates, will attempt to start the fourth network. Scripts and Writers They are hoping to get scripts from top science fiction writers. Please do not send us any scripts or story ideas. So they don't want another David Gerald breakaway. Because we know David yeah. Gerald got right. to start by being a teenager, sending in his idea for the Trouble with Tribbles. So for this, well, but because by this time Star Trek is so much more popular, yes, and there they would just have a flood of scripts that they would never have the time to read them all. We but know that this they, would be yeah. revisited though during the Next Generation era. Yeah, they and they did open it up again for Next Generation. So by then, I guess they could hire a lot more people to go through the scripts. But that is interesting. Yeah, they back then they they wanted to say right away, don't don't send any scripts because they knew like there were already a lot of fanzines back then. A lot of people were probably ready to send in a script, but it's like no, <laughs> we'll, we'll take care of that. We've got we're going to hire our own writers. Which I often wondered because they had Theodore Sturgeon they from had, the original the original series. They had Harlan Ellison. I mean, can you imagine if they got Isaac Asimov? Or Robert Heinlein. I mean, there there are other greats. Uh, Ray Bradbury. Can you imagine if Phase 2 went forward and had multiple seasons? What what amazing writers we could have written for Star Trek? We don't know that they could have gotten those writers. But yeah, it could have been great. And, and because, you know, as a lot of people have said, and I think this is true, that Star Trek is really better on, on TV than it is in movies. 100% Not I that agree it always succeeds on TV, but, but yeah, if it could have been a TV series, it, it probably would have been awesome back then. Because they said they want science fiction writers. Because yes. now, modern Trek, they explicitly don't want science fiction writers. They get drama writers and soap opera writers for Discovery. So it was like a whole different mentality for this Star Trek Phase 2 that they were planning. Right. It, it would have really been 
different, and it but it does sound like it would have been just so great to awesome. see. Yeah. And of course, well, well, now we we have seen scripts that were that they were going to use for Phase Two, and they were applied to Next Generation. Yes, when the writer strike went on. Yes, and some of them were good scripts. Really I mean, good. They were, yeah, they had good ideas for it. Visitors to the set. There will be few and far between. Paramount is a closed lot. So we know that during the original series, uh, we, when we got to speak to B. Joe Trimble, she said she would just go up to the set, go up to, and they allowed a limited amount of fans in there. This is pre-true Star Trek mania. By this point, they were not going to let fans on the set to see what was going on. Yeah, it's when Star Trek was so popular now that they would have just had mobs of people if they allowed it. Hi there, my name is Chris Krasnowski, and I am a visual effects artist and award-winning music composer for Potemkin Pictures. I've composed music for 11 other fan films and done visual effects for 8 of their films. So there's a bunch of different kinds of visual effects that um, that a visual effects artist can work on. They can do motion graphics, or they can do 3D animation, or they can do 2D animation, which is similar to motion graphics, but different in a few respects. Um... I mostly do 3D animation and space-based visual effects. So, like, when you see a starship flying around on screen or opening fire, that's usually the kind of stuff that I would do for the uh, for the production team. Now, back in the 1960s, uh, when they were shooting the uh, footage for the Enterprise on the original television series and later on in the movies, they had to shoot the Enterprise on a blue-screen background. And they had to use a process called chroma-keying to separate the Enterprise from the blue background and then... That way you could put stars behind her, or a nebula, or a planet, or just anything that could be done to give it the illusion that this ship is flying around in space. And they did the similar thing with uh, actors as well. Like, you could put an actor on a blue screen and then take out the blue and then put them in whatever background the production requires at the time. Now, these days, a lot of visual effects work is mostly done through digital means. You could shoot your footage and then you could put it onto your computer as a computer file and then you could import that file into a specific program that's designed to manipulate that footage. In the case of chroma keying, you could take your footage of your miniature or your actor, and then you could drop an effect onto that footage, and uh, that effect in this case would be, would be like key light or luma key or chroma key. And you could just select the color of the background, and then boom, it'll be gone. You can basically superimpose your uh, your miniature or your actor upon any environment that you want to at that point. Now, with everything being done digitally for Potemkin Pictures, it's a little bit easier. Like, I don't have to build a miniature. I don't have to do anything like that back in uh, what they had to do back in the 1960s or anything like that. The model is is just like the footage. It's, a, it's just a file. And um, I can open that up in my 3D animation software. I can uh, maneuver it. I can rotate it. I can manipulate it. And I can also manipulate a digital camera around it to give it that cinematic feel. And um, when I'm done... Of animating this the model and the camera, I could set my animation program to render out what it's called a transparent PNG sequence. So it was like a a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of transparent images that uh, capture that footage and export it out to a format that um, that our post production software can use. And once that uh, transparent image sequence is done rendering, I can take that model in the post production footage and. Uh, the animation software and the post-production footage software are two different uh, pieces of software. Like, one's designed for animation, one's designed for post-production. And once I put that image sequence in post-production software, I can manipulate it to make it appear brighter, darker. I can color correct it. I can 
make it appear more cinematic, I can add bloom to it or lens flares. Looking at you, JJ. And I can do explosions, what have you. It's not too different from how they shot models back in the day and uh, then they superimpose effects over them just to help tell the story a bit better. Um, the only difference is that it's just done on computer these days. I think it's gotten a lot easier to realize a particular vision for a story compared to what was able to be done back in the day. So with what they had to work with back in the 70s and even before then, they didn't have computers and such like we do now. They had to use physical film and film techniques and filters and miniatures and human stunt doubles or dangerous stunts. And, you know, the people using them, they had to be properly trained. Like, they had to be specialized in that sort of thing. And I think one could argue that um, it maybe captured the... Um, the imagination of the viewers or the mo of the movie or the TV show that they were watching a bit better compared to, you know, what's going on with these days. Because everybody knows, oh, that's CGI. Oh, that's that's a miniature shot. And I will say that um, the advent of digital technology, I think, seems to have somewhat diminished the, um, the sense of imagination and the sense of awe that audiences used to get from older films like Star Wars or Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just a trade-off. It's just a reality of modern-day filmmaking. But yeah, anyone could shoot a, a video with their cell phone camera if they wanted to at this point, um, and do whatever they want to with it. Like, they could capture just about any story these days. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on old techniques here, um, or discrediting those old-school techniques with miniatures and such, because, you know, they worked. They worked, and they worked well, because they made some movies timeless, like the original Star Wars. Um, and I'm, in fact, quite grateful that we had uh, visual effects as well as they were done back then, because it sort of inspired me, it inspired me as a VFX maker myself to, uh, uh, you know, pick up the software in high school and, you know, start messing around with it. And now I have a computer animation degree. <laughs> um and I think without those old school techniques, we might not have that that practicality, that availability, that um, that uh, that doorway for a young impressionable artist to step into and to uh, try it out for themselves. And I will say that that is probably the biggest biggest advantage of digital filmmaking and um, uh, visual effects these days. That anyone can do it, anyone. And I think without the magic of the uh, movies of old, I wouldn't be part of the generation of new, and I wouldn't have had the uh, wonderful opportunity that I've had to work with Randy and Potemkin Pictures. So um, I'm I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. State of the Art, a column of opinion by David Gerald. Now this entire column really talks about the need for donating blood at science fiction conventions. And we know Dragon Con does have a, have a blood donation every year set up. They sure do. And they have like really cool t-shirts that they give you if you donate blood. Yeah, they do. And they and they always um get get a lot of donations every year. And and so this article by David Gerald talks about Robert Heinlein and how he has a weird blood type, so he he depends on the blood donations from people. And I thought this was fantastic. Now, years ago when we would do conventions, I remember George Takei would not accept any money for his autograph. But what he would do is – now it's a whole different world. Now they're all in it for the money. 
certain writers aren't. Certain writers want to, for the most part, writers want to meet with the fans. A lot of creators want to meet with the fans, production people. But as far as the actors go, it, it's all a payday for them. But I remember George Takei used to have a donation bin saying, I'll sign whatever you want if you make a donation towards and he would rotate his nonprofit organization that he was donating for that day. And this is very similar. Robert Heinlein said, I will sign an item if you give blood. All you have to do, there's a blood station there. They're going to give you a card that proves that you gave blood. And I'll sign whatever you want. I think that's actually kind of a cool idea in many ways. It is. It's giving fans an incentive to to do something good to help people. So, so it's great that, that David Gerald wrote this. So he he's trying to, to get more donation to people to, to donate too. And it's it's something that science fiction fans are all in for. I mean, helping humanity, and it's just a great idea. It's another it's another type of charity. It's another way to give back and show that you care. Yes, and he talks about how he took this tip from Robert Heinlein. He applied it to a convention that he did in Colorado, and in fact, he said, "There's a little coupon here. If you give blood, send proof of this with this coupon." And I'll may, mail you a copy of my latest book. And that was cool. Yeah. So it's he's got the little form right here in in this issue of Starlog. Maybe we could still. You think we could still send it in? Do you think he'll send us the World of Star Trek or the Trouble with Tribbles? Because he said that, that those are the books that he would send you if he gave blood. Okay. Yeah, we should try. Does it say that they'd be autographed? <laughs> Right now, Loblaws is having a huge frozen food sale. You can get tremendous value on over 50 frozen food items, frozen vegetables, frozen meat entrees, frozen concentrated juices, ice cream. If it's frozen, you can save plenty. Don't get left out on the cold. Come on in and stock up that freezer. Loblaws frozen food sale. Another reason why more than the price is right. Starlog Magazine, issue number 10. Cover date, December 1977. Communications. So now here's an interesting letter that a fan wrote in. You know, previously we discussed this article on an episode of Starpod Trek. It says, Harlan censored. In the Elliston interview that you did an excellent job of probing into the man himself. However, you didn't let him come all the way through. In short, Mr. Ellison, as always, was censored. You omitted all but the first letters of two words and replaced them with dash. While I'm sure that most readers can fill in the blanks, it is still censorship. Ergo, Starlog is a censor. I realize that a magazine has the right to edit an interview, but I can hardly believe that this is coming from a magazine that uncovered and condemned the censorship of Star Trek episodes in Texas. Oh, All gee, right. the things people complain about. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. Listen to this. So Starlog responds by saying, when your letter arrived, we were disturbed enough by your contention to call Harlan. We asked if he felt he had been censored. His reply Tell the kid that I personally don't feel that I have been censored. He then went to make a few choice remarks about people who lust after four-letter words, but we have censored them to save you the embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody's ever heard Harlan Ellison interviews, oh boy, 
that guy can lay it down. Yeah, he can. And I, I don't really see any need to to put in print, you know, like, well, whether they have the full word or not, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, it, you know, you can read it. You know he said it, <laughs> whether <laughs> whether the word's spelled out or not. Now, I was one of those kids that would bring Starlog magazine to school with me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I get a kick out of this kid, this kid, uh, Fred Gilmore Jr. out of St. Albans, New York. He writes in and says, What does one say or do when constantly being ridiculed for an interest in science fiction and fantasy? I constantly get mocked by my friends because of my comic books, monster magazines, and the like. My ethics teacher made a fool out of me in front of the class because I had a Star Trek poster book. Please, I need some verbal ammo to strike back at these people. Oh, no, that, that was you. Wasn't that you who wrote that? <laughs> that's my, that, that, that's my alter ego, Fred Gilmore yes. Jr. <laughs> Of course, you weren't ridiculed, though. You no, said you no. had Star Trek friends. I had Star Trek friends. I totally did. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I consistently had a group of nerdy guys that I hung around with all the way from grammar school to high school. And to this day, I still communicate with some of them. Yeah, yeah so. that's amazing. I mean, I wasn't ridiculed for that just because I didn't tell people. Well, what happened when you wore that pin to school that said, beam me up, Scotty? Everyone said, who was Scotty? I mean, like, you know, nobody even knew or cared, really. <laughs> Starlog's response, unfortunately, your problem is not unique. People often have a tendency to ridicule something they fear, don't understand, or have no knowledge of. And so it goes on to say, you know, that's, kid, that's life, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a whole different world now, though, because geek is chic. Like, you could buy sci-fi and comic books type things at department stores. It was not like that when we were growing up. I had to struggle to find Star Trek things. Starlog magazine even was harder for me to find because I was in yes. a small town. Yes. But but yeah, sci- sci-fi is a lot more popular now and geeks are more out there in the world now. Definitely. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Enterprise, featured in Bionic Woman 2-parter. The future launch site of the Space Shuttle Enterprise will appear on television for the first time this fall on NBC's The Bionic Woman. The Bionic Woman is the first TV series to be permitted to film at the 425-foot-tall Space Launch Center in Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. The site will be used to launch the Enterprise beginning in 1982. Situated on the peninsula overlooking the Pacific Ocean, the SLC-6 plays an integral part in the two-part episode, Fembots in Las Vegas. Well, we saw that. Oh, man, that was a good episode. I remember seeing that as a kid, just thinking all the, the Maskatron and Fembot episodes were just absolutely amazing, seeing them pull off their faces and seeing the robotics. I loved seeing the Fembots, yes. Yeah. So there's a Star Trek connection there when you have the Enterprise Space Shuttle. Featured in this episode. And that's cool. And, and they, they knew that, um, of course these Bionic Woman fans were, um, were probably space fans as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, they had to get that in there. The age of the space shuttle. August 12th marked the historic first free flight testing of the space shuttle enterprise. 
The separation from atop 747 went without a hitch, and the shuttle's five-minute glide and dry lake bed landing were as smooth as silk. Awesome. Awesome. I, I just love hearing all the positive press about this historic ship and how later on we would see this in the opening credits of the Enterprise TV series from 2001. That's right. So the Enterprise space shuttle was mostly used for, like, like orbiting Earth's atmosphere. It didn't quite go into space, they said. Correct. It was just testing. And if you look at some of the details on it, they modified it going forward into further space shuttles. Yes, other space mm-hmm. shuttles later on. Yeah. Pigs in Space. Yes, there was more science fiction on TV this fall than ever before and in a greater variety, but none as weird as Pigs in Space. What did you think about the spaceship Swine Trek? That was always my favorite part of the Muppet Show. I mean, of <laughs> course. <laughs> Voyager will carry Earth Sound's record. When NASA's two Voyager spacecraft make their way into deep space after exploring Jupiter, Saturn, and 11 of their moons, the vessels will be carrying a unique long-playing sampler of their home planet, Sounds of Earth. The 12-inch copper disc housed on each Voyager contains greetings from Earth people in 60 languages, samples of music from different cultures and eras, and natural sounds of surf, wind, and thunder, birds, whales, and other animals. The record also contains electronic information that an advanced technological civilization could convert into diagrams, pictures, and printed words, including a message from President Carter. I remember hearing about this and being so amazed yeah, when I, I was too. a kid. When yeah, I, was, I was like, oh my God, this is so awesome. Now, now this is the funny thing. The only, when it, because I remember Carl Sagan coming on TV and talking about it. Now, my mother was an Elvis fanatic. She was nuts about Elvis. And she had these Elvis gold records that the vinyl itself was a translucent golden color. And in my little mind, I could just picture those Elvis records being sent (laughs) in space. space. (laughs) Yes. But what, what an amazing breakthrough in the idea of wanting to reach other sentient beings on other areas of um, yes other galaxies i just said this is this is absolutely science fiction coming to life it's definitely like um star trek in real life yes yes so that yeah pitting the pitting these sounds together and it was neat the ideas they came up with too the the music and the like they said a sound of a heartbeat and of a Everything of the human experience. Yes, yes. yes. And it's, I mean, it's really long. If you listen to it all, it goes on for hours. The the material on all the different, all the different sounds. Like aliens would want to sit and listen to that for hours. (laughs) (laughs) And, And it is neat. They're saying that it would, it's actually going to take a long time, probably thousands or, millions of years before before that actually reaches another planet or mm-hmm. or another being of any kind but it's just something that, that's why that the recording said um something like this is what we were because we might not exist back it, at yes. the time when someone yes. finds it right yes it, but yes. it was neat and and the fact that it's voyagers they said it, there's voyager one and two and to me, it still ties into Star Trek the Motion Picture with Voyager Six. You're not kidding. <laughs> which of there course, never was, but but yeah, yes. but because it's Voyager, you yes. know. 
Yes. And then I like the idea even the Voyager TV series. It yes. went to it went to areas that were totally unknown by the Federation at that time, going into the Gamma Quadrants. I mean, Star Trek mimicking real world, but the real world does mimic the things that Star Trek has promoted with regards to exploration and reaching other beings. Carl Sagan was on this. I mean, he so so I didn't really know who Carl Sagan was until he did that show Cosmos, Cosmos. That which was, was my, after that, this. Yeah, that was my expo. That was I was obsessed with that show. Yeah, was it on, oh, P- yeah. Was it on PBS? Yes, I it think was. it was on PBS. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god, I love that so much. It was a great show. It looked yeah. like it had higher production values than than most PBS yes. shows, definitely. Hello, I'm Galtrell, aka Max. Although some of y'all know me as Ken. Faster in light by the illustrious and iconic Isaac Osmoff. Mr. Osmoff, at the time of writing, points out that it has been three quarters of a century since Albert Einstein worked out the theory of relativity in 1905. It is clearly over a century, so how has the article and theory held up over the years? He quickly explains the distinct impracticality of going to light speed, as in terms of the galaxy and consequently the universe, the speed light is actually very slow. He goes through the possibility of tachyons and black holes and the technical issues of the concepts. With tachyons, we would have to convert whatever is traveling into tachyons then back to normal, hopefully in one piece. Certainly, this is out of our current technological capabilities. We haven't even detected tachyons, let alone converted any mass to them. So where does that leave sci-fi? Well, sci-fi writers have to bend the rules quite a bit. Writers have developed technologies that include warp drives, hyperspace, and wormholes to get from point A to point B in a more exciting way than if we stuck to the limitation of light speed. Warp speed in terms of Star Trek is really technically slow. Now, as many of you all know, I won't go into heavy details. Warp speed is a logarithmic scale of speed, whereas warp 10 is theoretically an infinite speed barrier. Briefly reviewing the warp speed chart, I surmise that a starship needs to reach about warp 9 to maintain any useful commerce throughout the galaxy. And realistically speaking, the space that Star Trek Universe covers is only a small patch of the Milky Way galaxy. Now I'd like to touch upon one of my favorite games of all time, Elite Dangerous. This game puts space in a brilliant perspective to see how much is really out there. Elite Dangerous is modeled on our galaxy, the Milky Way. You can travel to the center of our galaxy, Sagittarius A, which is 25,640 light years away. To put it in perspective, Romulan neutral zone is speculated to be about 130-ish light years away. Then there are the sheer number of stars. Elite Dangerous was released in 2014 in about five years' time, in 2019, only about 0.042% of the whole galaxy has been explored. Given that a lot of players visit the same stars as other players, 
this percentage isn't going to grow at a rapid rate. Back on the topic of space travel, Elite Dangerous uses three different modes of travel. Standard sublight space travel, super cruise, which is faster than light speed travel, which is akin to the warp drive, up to a maximum speed of 2001C, or about warp 7.3. To jump from many star systems, ED uses a hyperspace method of travel limited to the player's ship's quality of frame ship drive, mass of the ship, and its fuel. So in conclusion, FTL will be relegated to the realm of science fiction and for the foreseeable future until some sort of FTL technology is developed. And so Osmoff's article certainly has stood the test of time of nearly half a century and remains quite valid. I am Gelchel. You can find me on Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube. Thank you, and see you in hyperspace. Star Trek Report, a fan news column by Susan Sackett. So, Susan Sackett this month, she gave us so much information at the last issue. So this one is mainly just filling us in that the, the Star Trek actors are alive and well. Michelle Nichols is doing great. Uh, Jimmy Doohan has a kid. Yes. Everyone's getting along with one another. Uh, just more fill-in that they had a get-together recently in the Paramount studio lot, many of the Star Trek staff. A Star Trek reunion. And, and she actually said that a lot of them hadn't seen each other since the show, but I thought, like, they've seen each other at cons all these years. I wonder even about that. Like, I wonder if they came in on different days or were separated. Because I thought that was curious, mm -hmm. too. Yeah, they could have to some extent. But some of them, well, let's say some of them probably did see each other at mm -hmm. some point. Gives us a bulletin. New Enterprise under construction. They were building a blueprint for the new Starship Enterprise. And change can be good, yeah, because we want something updated. And... I suppose what they were building there is what became what they used in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yes. And they said this would be for the new Star Trek II. We know Star Trek II, sometimes called Star Trek Phase Two. It was like a morphing name. Yeah. Now when we say Star Trek II, we think of the Wrath of Khan. But at that time, Star Trek II meant the next 1970s Star Trek series. So they had a background. They said, uh, we know where the captain's chair will be. And they could envision Jim Kirk sitting on it. There would be two elevators on the bridge this time. Yeah, that was something that Gene had talked about was a mistake before. They they didn't think about it then. Like, only having one way to get to the bridge doesn't make sense. And a bathroom, too. That right. was a mistake that they mentioned <laughs> yeah. in the past. Yes. Well, I think even now they still don't put the bathroom on the blueprints. Mm -hmm. I think they have a close by. I think okay. that's the idea. Is there one, then? Yeah. One? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the engineering section will be three stories tall, and they said those huge plywood boards you see there, those would be corridor sections. So they're already building things in 1977 with the hope that people would sign on. Future Conventions Connecticon, October 28th through 30th, 1977 in East Hartford, Connecticut. BrookCon 3, October 28th through 30th, La Ronconacona, New York. 
Star Trek World Expo, February 18th through 20th, 1978, New York City. The first annual science fiction merchandise guide for items for 1977-1978. Yellow page section. Quite a few things for Star Trek. I mean, we've mentioned that how hard it was to be Star Trek fans when we were younger because certain other science fiction and pop culture things were everywhere in the 70s and 80s. I mean, mainly Star Wars. But Star Trek just couldn't break into the mainstream popularity to that level. I couldn't go to yeah, a grocery store very, and just find something or, or a five and dime. It was very noticeable for us, like, because you see all the Star Wars stuff and you go, well, that's here, but where's the Star Trek stuff? Mm-hmm. So, um, we have things like blueprints. Daniel Bringer in San Jose, California sells blueprints to new Starfleet vessels, Starship docks. Costumes. Well, well, was he authorized to do that? No, some of these are just <laughs> yeah. like just random people's names, which I think is just so funny. Um, that that was it. I mean, this was kind of like the eBay and the Etsy of the seventies. You just had a list of names, and you you write in for a catalog. Yeah, yeah, that's all you had to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, but you had to order this stuff. We're saying like yes. it was harder to find in stores. Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it just you you really had to I remember like my first Star Trek convention going to in the mid 80s and there were just I mean cosplay was not a big thing. Yes, there was a costume parade or a costume contest, but nowhere near to the level now. But even just something as simple as an original series Star Trek uniform looked amazing because like where where would you get this stuff? You had to sew your own. They would sell patterns, right? Yeah. Um, but this one, Starfleet uniforms. This guy sells out of Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, sells Star Trek uniforms and insignias. Sell, send SASE for complete information. I remember sending SASEs out constantly when I was a kid. Self-addressed yeah, stamped envelopes. Yes. Right? I, mean, I, remember, I remember everything. Yeah, just about everything in Starlog asked for that. Yes. Yes. And then send $2 for a catalog. I'd send money in the mail. I did too. Yeah, sending cash because <laughs> yes, all the time when we were kids, like yeah, I didn't know anything about a check or anything, and I, yeah, and was, I would send like dollar bills and even coin. I would send loose coins in envelopes <laughs> too. Yes, because there's no way my mother was gonna write a check for a dollar or something. You yeah, know what I mean? Like yeah. she was gonna do this because back then I think they charged for checks. I think because if I asked her to write a check for something, it was almost like oh please mom please you know it was a project everything was a big project. Where it's like I got a dollar. Got money from the tooth fairy. I'm going to put a dollar in here. I'll send something out. Um, I get a kick out of some of this stuff. The variety of fan clubs listed. The James Doohan fan club. The Hosato, which is the George Takei fan club. The Walter Koenig fan club. The Shell Nichols fan club. Leonard Nimoy Association of Fans. And Well, the thing is, and these were just fans. Like one fan started their own fan club and, and you know... So you could you could do that. I mean, just just start your own fan club if you can't find one for the actor that you like. Yes, William Shatner Letter Exchange. Wow, I don't understand that. Really, <laughs> <laughs> like you exchanged letters about William Shatner. Yeah, it must have been. Fa- yeah, like William <laughs> right? Shatner fans writing letters to each other. This is one that I was part of. Star Trek Welcomeity. Yes, I told you that story. You send a welcoming, you send information about yourself, and then. 
you could check off, do you want another fan to write to? The, the whole point was correspondence. So I was in grammar school at the time. and I got a letter from the well committee from a girl. It's, I don't know where she was from. Could have been anywhere. But it said, hi, my name is yada yada. I'm this and this. I like this and this. I was so afraid. I was like, oh my goodness, I got a letter from a girl. I don't even know what to do with this. I ripped it up in shreds and I threw it away because I didn't want my mother to see that I got a letter from a girl. <laughs> I mean, how nerdy is that? So that's what happened? You tore up my letter? <laughs> <laughs> now, this guy advertises a lot in Starlog, and it's out of Kingston Springs, Tennessee, Cosmic Enterprises. He sells posters of Space Shuttles, Skylab, Jupiter, Pioneers, Spectrums. Include 50 cents for postage and handling. So if you were to send a self-addressed stamp envelope, you said you would send in two quarters loose? Yeah, I, I did things like that. <laughs> Props. Starfleet Command Incorporated. Now, this is one of the things we talked about. They had a business called Starfleet Command. I don't think they'd be allowed to do that today. I imagine that term is trademarked. Probably so. Right? Out of Burbank, California, they sell communicators, tricorders, phasers, lightsabers, Star Trek insignias, pointed ears, and more. 25 cents in a self-addressed stamped envelope for a catalog. How about Starfleet Fabrications? They sell uniforms. All of this stuff was happening back then, and it and it's why these studios have clamped down on this, especially people selling it um, at cons, too. So now you have to be licensed to sell anything like that that's trademarked. But I, I love it, though. I just that, that was such a special era, because if you were a Star Trek fan, die hard enough to keep mailing out i mean i i I just viewed you as a person as very special if i found out that you did things like this too because we were more of an obsessive compulsive breed we yeah we really wanted this stuff and this was one of the few ways you could get it it just you know went back when things were not really as available and granted at this time i was too young to be sending stuff out i was just buying you know, I didn't buy it. My dad bought it for me, Mego dolls and whatever things that I could find. By the time the 90s came, it was super mainstream. It was a whole different world. You'd go into a Kmart, and it would be entire aisles dedicated to Star Trek. But looking at these early passionate fans, I just appreciate how far fandom has come since then. It's true that it's changed. Well, yeah, in the 90s is when they flooded the market. But now we're also in a time where you have to go back to mostly ordering online. My name is Chris Krasnowski, and I am a visual effects artist and award-winning music composer for Potemkin Pictures. So in regards to Illusion of Motion, um, back in the day, you usually had your uh, built model for your hero ship, either dangling on a wire or um, set up on a post of some kind. And then you would move your camera around to try to give it that illusion of motion that it's moving around in neat space. And you'd also have to, uh, you'd also have to move the background elements too, like the planet. Like you would do a slow zoom in on your planet to make it appear like the ship is getting closer to the planet. Now, these days, I wouldn't say too much has really changed concerning illusion of motion. Um, but with digital models, you can actually move those around. Like you can move those models around in physical space instead of just having to move your camera around. And let's be real here for a moment. Um, with all their inner workings, all their inner components, all the materials they were made of, moving physical models, especially ones like the six-foot Enterprise D model they used for the next generation, it was pretty damn hard. 
And I think being able to move your 3D model around uh, in 3D space, it sort of gives a more, it gives a more realistic, lifelike quality to um, how smooth something appears to move in space. So whenever I'm doing my spaceship shots, um, instead of moving the camera around like they used to do, I'll just move the ship around most of the time. I'll move the camera a little bit too, of course, to try to give it that cinematic type feel. Um, to make it feel more realistic, but, um, you know, not always, but, but very often. Okay, so, in regards to superimposition, um, superimposition is essentially taking a piece of footage and then putting something over it. Putting a second layer of footage over that first layer of footage. With superimposition, um, back in the day, you had to, uh, film one subject, then roll your film reel back, and then film a second subject. But these days, as before, it's all digital. So um, you could take your footage and, uh, yeah, let's say your footage is actors on a green screen. So you could take your footage of actors on a green screen, then chroma key it, as I mentioned before, taking out all the green. And then you could superimpose those actors on a background. And then you could also superimpose uh, something else onto those actors, you know, like a prop or something, like a machine. Now back in the day they had um they had to use cameras and such. Uh but you could only do it with your cameras. But these days, like I said, it's all digital. So like you could take your video footage as a file and then put it into a layer. And then you can put a background layer behind that footage, and then you could also take another layer and then put that in front of the footage uh to make to make it appear as if something is in front of the actors. Now, in regards to superimposition with Potemkin Pictures and how that factors into what I do, um, so whenever I'm rendering out uh, space shots for Potemkin Pictures, I would first render out my background, which could be stars and a nebula, for instance. Uh, I'll keep it simple here. And then I could have the Potemkin uh, just flying off into space, doing doing its thing. And from my 3D animation software, I can also render out uh, layers of the Potemkin. So like, I, I have... Uh, I have just the ship itself, no lighting or anything like that. Um, I could render out a layer that tells me where the lighting is. I could render out a layer that tells me how shiny certain parts of the Potemkin are. I can also have a layer where um, it's just the inner light of the ship. So, like, let's say, uh, you know, lights from the crew quarters in the star drive section or the saucer section. Um, I could have a layer for those as well. And uh, I could touch those layers up in post-production you know, add a bit of a uh, bloom to them and such. When they were filming Star Trek The Next Generation, and they were doing the effect shots for the Starship Enterprise, um, they had a separate layer for just the ship, no lights or inner workings or anything like that. Then they had a separate layer for the lights and inner workings, and then they had a separate layer for uh, the ship's warp engines. So it's a similar process to what was done here. So what they would do is they would do the exact same shot, but with different lighting setups. With um, digital technology these days, that's not really necessary. You can render that in them out all at once into separate image sequences if you wanted to, and then touch them up in post-production just as easily. And then once you're done, you can superimpose those layers um, and combine them all together to make the ship feel and look and appear more realistic or more cinematic or more stylized, you know, depending on your own visual style. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. 
Live long, and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Hollow Sweet Preview Program 4, her first Trek, a Star Trek preview podcast. I don't know what Picard is doing between the Stargazer and the Enterprise D. So, how do you go from abandoning a ship to getting given the flagship? But <laughs> he 10 lost years the other passes. One. <laughs> yeah, he lost the other one. So like, here's a really special one. And here's the best part we're going to put families and children on it. Yeah. Because <laughs> we know that you're so good at taking care of starships. Yeah. I don't know how he got the ship and what was he doing in the time in between. I don't think he had another command before the Enterprise I D. Don't know. I, I don't know. I'm sure someone will let me know. We have quite a few TNG fans who listen to the show actually so maybe they'll tell me but no spoilers guys no spoilers loading holosuite preview program for the voyages a star trek original animated and kelvin films podcast full honesty i did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and scotty to get to the enterprise when they were in their little capsule i felt that that was a very long scene driving around the whole enterprise but Find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment. And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise. Just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.